Well, one of the benefits of Vermont is, is that the farmers uh, and usually the ladies, uh, ladies, the the wives of the farmers, kept very good records about dairy cows mm. and the uh, births and the uh, bordices of dairy cows and and what the problems were. And so because of the kinds of records they kept, we were able to uh, speculate that the high tension wires were not important in terms of malformations that occurred in in uh, the dairy cows and probably to some extent that the threat of the uh, electromagnetic fields from high tension wires was not as important as some people had thought. That was Jerome Yates, one of the architects of Vermont Cancer Center, which received its core grant in 1978. I'm Alexandria Carolyn, associate editor of the Cancer History Project. In July, the Cancer History Project is focusing on the founders of cancer centers. In this conversation, Yates tells us how he helped build one from the ground up. For Yates, a Joe Simone quote comes to his mind when reflecting on his days in Vermont. When you've seen one cancer center, you've seen one cancer center. University of Vermont received a planning grant in 1974 to develop a cancer center in Vermont at a time when funds were flowing from NCI. Yates also received a rehabilitation grant from NCI for patients with advanced cancer, which helped develop a clinical infrastructure for the future cancer center. You know, let's pick up where we left off. You left Roswell Park in, I believe, 1974 to join University of Vermont. Um, what, what led to that decision? Uh, yes. Well, Jim Holland came back from Russia in 1973, and we looked at a number of different places to go. Uh, he wanted me to go with him. He went to Mount Sinai in New York City. I told him I would go any place with him, but I wouldn't go to New York City. So I looked for a few jobs. There was a fellow who went to medical school in Vermont at Roswell, whose name was Jim Wallace. And Jim said, there are no oncologists in Vermont. Why don't you take a look at Vermont? And so I did. And at the time I went there, uh, there was a, a chairman of hematology who was relatively conservative when it came to cancer and leukemia and blood dyscrasia management. And, uh, and I saw it as an opportunity to build a program. And so I elected to go ahead and go to Vermont. At that time, I was promised uh, uh, a, a couple of nurses, a secretary, and some startup funding to start the, a cancer center there. I'm curious, you know, what did this feel like or how was it different going from someplace like Roswell Park to Vermont? Yes, uh, Roswell, essentially, I went to Roswell to train because Jim Holland was training fellows in uh, medical oncology. There was no training program in Vermont. There were no oncologists in the whole state of Vermont. The only... Uh, oncologists that lived in Vermont were in Hanover and Dartmouth, which was the other side of the state. Uh, and there were only a few basically solid tumor oncologists, even at Dartmouth at that point in time. They did have a cancer center 
and they were part of the Cancer and Acute Leukemia Group B, which I also had been a part of uh, when at Roswell and I uh, transferred uh, my activities from uh, Roswell to Vermont. But when I went to Vermont in 1974, as I said, there were no medical oncologists in the whole state of Vermont. And I, you mentioned, you know, you, you part of the, this plan to go to Vermont was to start a cancer center there to develop a cancer program. Can you talk about the sorts of, you know, the legwork that went into this at the very beginning? Yes, uh, there were uh, people doing basic cancer research. Dick Albertini was a, a MD, PhD, who was looking at carcinogenesis and testing to uh, determine what chemicals or exposures might be carcinogenic. And he and I collaborated uh, as he wrote a planning grant uh, for developing a cancer center. At the same time, I wrote a grant to look at the rehabilitation of uh, cancer patients with advanced cancer because I felt that the rural environment deprived them of a lot of opportunities that one could find in a uh, uh, cancer center like Roswell Park. And so I put together a multidisciplinary grant that included uh, nurse practitioners, social workers, physical therapists, occupational therapists, uh, clergy, and uh, and we uh, structured and structured it in such a way that the nurses and the social workers were able to follow the patients in their homes in this rural environment, and we uh, essentially laid out a comparison between counties in which we did this in an intensive way with periodic visits versus counties where the patients receive customary care uh, being followed only in the clinic. The rehab grant on the clinical side allowed the uh, building of a, a strong clinical research structure and the uh, planning grant on the research side allowed the development of cancer research programs that uh, were really the forerunners of the core grant that we got uh, uh, three years later. That sounds like a lot, a lot was done in such a short period of time, three years. Well, we were lucky, I think, at that time. And uh, one of the fortunate things was that funding was a little easier to acquire. When I wrote the rehabilitation grant, and it was a large grant. The direct costs were like $600,000 a year. And uh, in uh, 1975 or 76, this was uh, substantial funding. Uh, the cancer, the National Cancer Institute was looking at ways that they could uh, expand cancer control money and do research in the cancer control field. And so it was an extraordinary time. At that time, they were funding 45% of the approved grants. And uh, similarly, on the 
other side, on the science side, they were interested in developing cancer centers. And so the ability to get a planning grant to develop the cancer center was also critical to uh, uh, stimulate the pursuit of R01s and build programs. Uh, so it was an opportune time. And you look at it the way it is now, where they're funding 10 to 15% of the approved grants, it's not so good. It was, uh, it's a lot tougher for the young people today. I believe it. Um, and, and, you know, this, so this planning grant was obviously key to uh, Vermont Cancer Center receiving NCI designation um, a couple of years later. How, uh, you know, in, in applying for this grant, what, how did the application process work at that time? Well, uh, let me just say that one of the critical factors, uh, uh, Dick Albertini was important on the science side. I laid some of the foundation for the clinical side. And then uh, I was able to recruit Irv Krakoff to come from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, where he, he was the chairman of medicine. And he came in 1976. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was the uh, last, uh, I think maybe the second year of the planning grant for the cancer center. And uh, Irv uh, had obviously long experience uh, 20 or 30 years of experience dating back to working with some of the real pioneers in, uh, in medical oncology. And he brought the, both the uh, clinical side and the uh, uh, basic science side together writing the core grant, which uh, we uh, were awarded, I think, in 1977 or 78. I, I can't remember the exact dates, but it was really the three of us working together that sort of put this together. Then uh, subsequently, uh, at the same time, Irv was able to get a contract for looking at phase one drugs. One of the reasons he was attracted to Vermont is because we were lucky. We had basic scientists who were working in, in the pharmacology department who uh, one was working on vinc alkaloids, another was working on anthracyclines, and uh, a third was working on, on uh, methotrexate-related drugs. So we had strong basic science and drug development, brought Irv's expertise to Vermont. He was able to get a, a contract for studying phase one, phase two uh, drugs. I maintained the affiliation with the Cancer and Acute Leukemia Group B. And so we really had a, an extremely strong program in the, in the late 70s. And uh, in fact, it was probably as strong as some of the programs that were in the major cancer centers uh, fortuitously because the uh, science was there and the opportunity to develop a training program in medical oncology and and to expand the medical oncology expertise uh, was uh, really rich at that time. So it was a lot of fun. I think both Irv and I had uh, great fun working together. Uh, he used to chide me about the uh, uh, cooperative groups because most of his work was done with the developmental studies and drug development. 
and he'd always I'd say, well, you got to depend on the the uh, cooperative groups to uh, substantiate what information you're developing in basic science. And he'd say to me, yeah, the cooperative groups reach statistically significant answers to insignificant questions. And so we had a, a wonderful relationship that uh, has existed uh, continually through the years. So I also uh, developed a prevention program, uh, a preventive medicine program in the uh, College of Medicine that was funded by the uh, NCI and it allowed me to go to Harvard uh, 1980 to 81 to get a master's in public health degree and I straddled between Boston and uh, and uh, Vermont which uh, I wouldn't recommend I actually had thought about going to Baltimore uh, North Carolina but my wife wanted to get a master's degree in maternal child nursing and she did that at Boston College while I got my degree at Harvard but the Vermont years were a lot of fun because it was an opportunity to to put things together and to see them grow and actually to see a real impact on the quality of cancer care in Vermont and also the quality of the research programs. Um, I'm curious a little bit about this work you did in preventative medicine. What did the field look like at the time? Well, I think that uh, most uh, medical students were exposed to uh, what I call uh, uh, water pump epidemiology. They were, and most of it was based in infectious disease. And the ability to look at papers that were critical in terms of, of understanding which papers were good papers and which papers weren't so good in terms of their uh, statistical manipulations and the conclusions that they reached based on the data they had available uh, it was a, it was a transformative time. Cancer medicine really improved dramatically in the 60s when there was a fusion of biostatisticians to look at study design issues and interpretation of information with uh, the oncology community and hematology community so that they paid attention to protocol design and how they could answer questions uh, about uh, whether or not there were benefits uh, uh, in terms of the treatment and, and also understand how they could interpret the side effects uh, and, and, and basically look at how they should stratify patients uh, in terms of their uh, risk factors. Uh, uh, one of the things that I brought to Vermont when, when uh, from my work at Roswell was that the older patients with acute myelocytic leukemia didn't do as well as young patients did with the treatment. And uh, where Irv came from Memorial, Dave Karnowski, developed the Karnowski performance status, and that was a forerunner to looking at the stratification of patients in large group trials. The ECOG performance index came after that. There were other multiple others, 
but this was a way of looking at the patients and understanding who might be more vulnerable, who might not be more vulnerable, and also to look at the outcome data. So it was really the, the fusion of, uh, from my perspective, the fusion of biostatistics, providing some rigor to clinicians. Physicians are used to uh, treating each patient individually and sometimes have a little difficulty in conforming to protocols, but the rigor that required for large studies to generate real answers about whether or not the treatments were successful, or in some cases, whether or not they were hazardous uh, in terms of overall survival for the patient population. The fusion of those two things w was critical. And so the prevention program in, in uh, Vermont uh, for the first year that, that uh, I developed it, I essentially had the medical students looking at papers, which I considered to be rigorous and providing good foundations for the studies they were reporting and good analysis of the results versus papers that weren't so good. The, there were a lot of anecdotal uh, types of papers suggesting improvements in care. And uh, uh, the other thing that was going on at the time, there was an attempt to look at historical controls particularly in cancer medicine. Uh, MD Anderson was looking at uh, patient historical controls and then carrying and comparing them to uh, the current treatment methods that they were using. And the reality is, is that particularly in cancer, uh, there are improvements in supportive care. I, in my early years, I worked a lot with uh, new antibiotics uh, because I was doing a fair amount of infectious disease. We were providing platelet transfusions and we were testing white blood cell transfusions to see if we could uh, control the sepsis that uh, many of these patients get because of the suppression effects of the drugs on the bone marrow. And so the ancillary supportive measures for patients uh, was critically important. And as those improved, the outcomes improved for patients. And so it looked as if some new approaches with chemotherapy were actually better than they were because the comparison with historical controls was problematic. And so it was uh, an important era in terms of uh, uh, knowledge and understanding about um, clinical trials methodology and uh, and it was also important in terms of uh, infusing some of that critical thinking into the medical students. And that was what I tried to do with the preventive medicine program that we developed that had not existed in Vermont before. And in developing a cancer prevention program at UVM, is this something you just sort of got up one day and were like, this is happening? Or, you know, can you talk about the work that went into sort of that thing, even the recruitment maybe? Well, there was uh, the, the prevention program was really uh, looking at the data that was available critically. There were uh, migration studies that showed, for example, that gastrointestinal uh, cancer among Japanese in Japan 
compared to Japanese and Hawaii, compared to American uh, Japanese, was much different in terms of the incidence. And the reason it was different is largely because of diet. Uh, there, there were uh, studies going on, try, particularly with colorectal cancer, to look at diet. There are also parallel studies. That lots of information was being generated about smoking patterns. And so uh, these are lifestyle issues that could be uh, looked at and, and could be studied. Uh, so the cancer prevention program in Vermont, because of the relative sparsity of the population, also because uh, the farmers uh, in Vermont uh, were, relatively speaking, heavy smokers compared to some of the other population around the country. So, so we focused on smoking cessation programs, which uh, had the, they, they were beneficial, but they were also difficult at the time. At the time, uh, their smoking was widespread and needless to say in restaurants and actually even in schools, it was, there were areas that people could smoke. So. Uh, it, smoking probably received the major attention in terms of, uh, of uh, 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 prevention programs. Mm. There was an observation made that, that and one of the food substances that people in Vermont eat in the springtime are fiddlehead ferns. Well, there was a suggestion that that eating fiddlehead ferns might contribute to the occurrence of bladder cancer. Looked at the occurrence of bladder cancer and fiddlehead ferns. Well, it turned out not to be uh, not to be relevant. The other thing in Vermont that was interesting was at the time there were lots of of uh, anecdotal reports of acute leukemia occurring uh, in in populations and primarily uh, childhood populations uh, that were resident where their residents were close to high tension wires high tension electrical wires have electromagnetic fields and there was some concern about the uh, leukemia could be caused by this kind of exposure well one of the benefits of vermont is is that is that the farmers uh, and usually the ladies, uh, ladies, the the wives of the farmers, kept very good records about dairy uh, cows mm. and the uh, births and the uh, bordices of dairy cows and and what the problems were. And so, because of the kinds of records they kept. Uh, we were able to uh, uh, speculate that uh, that the high tension wires were not important in terms of uh, of uh, malformations that occurred in in uh, the dairy cows and probably uh, to some extent uh, that that the threat of the uh, uh, electromagnetic fields from high tension wires was not as important as some people had thought. So the rural environment provided uh, some unique uh, 
opportunities, but also some real challenges. And one of the challenges was, as I alluded to, many, many of the male farmers uh, were smokers. Probably at that time, uh, I would guess 70% uh, were smokers or so. And if you look at it today, it, it's much lower. It's probably 15% at the most. And so lung cancer and heart disease were fairly common. And the disabilities that they suffered uh, required uh, medical care. And, and they were the primary drivers in the households there. The women, on the other hand, as I alluded to, kept the financial records and paid the bills and did that stuff uh, for the uh, family. And so when the women would get breast cancer, there were difficulties with the farmer, with the male counterparts handling the financial side of the operation. And when the males got their lung cancer and had to get treated either with radiation or chemotherapy or surgery, they, uh, the wives, many of the wives couldn't drive a car. So we attempted to get the state rehabilitation department to actually set up rehabilitation programs for the spouses to sort of balance the activities out in the household. I must report that we were unsuccessful in that operation. The bureaucracy was tougher than we could deal with. How did you go about trying to balance the the work there? Well, we wanted to be, have the rehab department pay for women to have driver's training mm -hmm. and to have men uh, have some uh, rudimentary training in managing checks, checkbooks and, and balancing uh, the financial records. To, they could, we thought that with a relatively simple program, if it was available, it would make a big difference because one of the problems that uh, occurs uh, in in rural populations is transportation is a major major issue, and particularly if people have to go periodically to uh, to uh, uh, get their medical care. So one of the basic tenets of the rehabilitation grant that I had was the nurses went out into the homes of half of the population and saw the uh, patients there as well as in the clinic. And uh, so there was some continuity of care and we uh, actually uh, made it a little easier in terms of dealing with the uh, problems that occurred because the nurses would see the patients in the home. Similarly, the social workers were making periodic visits in the same home, uh, same homes and and they could help them with other logistical problems that were really social problems at the time. So it was the rural environment is a little different than in the large cities and the needs of the population are a little different. And, and we tried to exploit that as much as we could. We worked with the people at Dart Dartmouth to look at, at the uh, radiotherapy and lung cancer, and and there was an inverse relationship between how far away they were from either Hanover or from uh, Burlington, where there were radiotherapy facilities. The people who lived long distances away were less likely to get 
what was then straight state-of-the-art therapy because of the transportation problems. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of problems continue to exist today. And uh, it's, uh, so it, the, the rural environment is, is much different than the metropolitan environment that one finds in cities like New York City or Buffalo or, or Boston or wherever. Was that a big adjustment for you? Well, my dad was a farmer. I grew up in the Midwest. And so I, uh, uh, it was an adjustment. It was not an adjustment for me. Probably uh, going into medicine and doing what I did was more of an adjustment. But it was, it's good to uh, uh, have some insights into uh, what the social factors are that are important that are important in the lives of of those patients. Uh, I think those of us who have worked in large cancer centers sometimes think it's so easy uh, that when you tell people that they've got to come back to see you in the clinic uh, once a week or whatever the the time factor is, and and it's not always easy to juggle those things for. Uh, the patients and it's particularly not easy if they're relatively sick and and if they're sick and they're hospitalized then whoever the members of the family have to uh, bear the burden of of traveling large distances to go visit them while in the hospital so it's a different world and the social factors become much more important the one thing, the rehab study, at the end of the rehab study, what we found was I, I theorized that we would make a difference in overall survival for the patients with advanced cancer. Well, that turned out not to be true. But we did make a difference in terms of their quality of life, and we measured quality of life factors. And the most uh, prominent one was pain control, that we were much, we could control the pain much better where the patients were seen periodically in their homes uh, by the uh, nurses and the social workers. The other thing we did, because we would meet uh, once a week and go over new patients and, and other problem issues with other patients, and, and I'm a morning person having uh, had parents that always got up early in the morning. I'd have the meetings at seven o'clock in the morning, which was an, required a certain amount of adaptation for some of the other people. But we learned from one another so that we had a priest and a, and a Protestant clergyman. At that time, there were not many Jewish people in, in Vermont. And, uh, and the, uh, they would develop expertise in areas that you might consider kind of different, and one of them was physical therapy. One of the most important findings in the study was if the physical therapist went out into these homes and there were mobility problems for the patients or, or uh, management is logistical management issues, they oftentimes made suggestions that allowed patients who had some restricted mobility or uh, it was difficult for them to uh, uh, do things that we take for granted every day uh, that, that they could improve things. Well, the, uh, when the, uh, the clergy met with, and I used to chuckle about this, the Catholic priest would make suggestions about they should see uh, 
they we should get the physical therapist to come and look or or they should get the social worker to deal help them deal with their insurance problems uh, so there was cross uh, education for all of us in the uh, and this group of 20 or 25 people met as i said once a week uh, in the morning to go over the new problems and we all learned from each other so it was uh, it was a different kind of environment if you ask people in buffalo to meet once a week at seven o'clock in the morning with all of the disciplines they'd look at you and say well why is that necessary that seems like a crazy idea so some ideas are work in the rural areas that don't work in the cities yeah absolutely i'm actually i'm really curious I just find this so interesting how unique the population in Vermont is. Um, you know, how did you go about getting to know these communities and, and getting them to, you know, see, seek care at, at UVM? Well, I, because there were no oncologists, it was, uh, there wasn't competition. And what I did was establish relationships with the referring physicians, and most of whom were surgeons at the time in the outlying hospitals. So I, uh, once a month, I would go do tumor boards in St. Albans, which is uh, about 40 miles north of Burlington. I'd go across the lake to Plattsburgh uh, once, once a month uh, to the uh, hospital in, in Plattsburgh, New York. I'd go down to Rodland once a month and then uh, uh, central Vermont. Uh, and one of the things that made it a little easier at the time was I had an airplane so I could fly to these places and not uh, spend so much time traveling, particularly uh, it, going to Plattsburgh, you'd have to drive, take the ferry across and whatever, but it was like a 10 minute flight to go across the lake from Burlington to Plattsburgh, plus it was fun. That's amazing. We, I, I think we touched on this last time for sure, but can you talk about when was it that you learned to fly? Well, I learned to fly when I was in Buffalo. And actually, I would, when I was in Buffalo, I went down to one of the Southern Tier, one of the hospitals in the Arnott Ogden Hospital, which is down outside of Corning, New York. And so I would go down there once a month. And, and that drive is a three and a half hour, four hour drive, whereas it's about a 40 minute flight from Buffalo. Wow. So I had, I'd always wanted to fly. And when I was a fellow in, in 1968, one of my friends said, why don't we go learn how to fly? And we did. And <laughs> I, then I, I did that for, uh, until, uh, uh, I got married and had kids and, and your priority shift at that point in time. That's when I got rid of the airplane. Oh no. It sounds like the plane made you a better doctor in a way. You were able to do things more efficiently in that in that regard. Well, in some ways, uh, but it was probably as much uh, as much fun as it was uh, uh, making the contact. The critical factor is that now there are lots of oncologists, and and the other, and so life is differently. But at that point in time, we were viewed with a certain level of of uh, suspicion. There were people who felt that we were treating patients aggressively with uh, treatments that that were uh, 
making some of them worse. And I, and uh, you know, I'm. This isn't anything new. We were called uh, poison pushers. We were called uh, uh, other disparaging, uh, descriptive uh, comments uh, because of what we were doing. The reality was chemotherapy was emerging as very important in terms of the adjuvant treatment of breast cancer. It was clearly uh, making a difference in terms of treating Hodgkin's disease and lymphomas. When I went to Vermont, the uh, hematologist was very conservative and he wasn't treating any of these people aggressively in the way I thought was appropriate treatment, the way I'd been trained. And, and it took a few patients to show that you could make a difference in terms of controlling these diseases. And, and there, was, uh, there were surgeons who were collaborative and cooperative who also made a difference. And as you could show that you really could help some of these people either uh, with uh, controlling their disease or providing supportive care that was important in terms of, uh, of making their quality of life better, uh, there was an increasing respect, but uh, there wasn't much respect in the departments of medicine for medical oncologists in the 60s. And, uh, and uh, there certainly in that period of time, there were no medical oncologists who were chairman of departments of medicine. But that, that too has changed over the years. So now uh, there is uh, more respect and and uh, and more collaboration and more understanding that uh, that uh, things have evolved because of the of the advances of the the clinical research programs and the basic science program i find that interesting what you said about the poison pushers especially because um just what you were saying earlier, how you, you, you know, you had the hypothesis that perhaps you could prolong survival in advanced cancer patients. Um, but in reality, it sounds like you, you ended up focusing a lot on palliative care and, you know, pain management. And that's, that just sounds like the complete opposite of a poison pusher to me. Well, the bulk of the cancers we were seeing at that period of time, a lot of lung cancer because of the relatively heavy smoking, and and I uh, carrying over, I thought that maybe uh, missing uh, uh, crisis that occurred with people with advanced cancer that the that the nurses and the team would pick these up earlier, and then we could actually prolong survival. Because at the time we dealt in survival curves uh, because the treatment interventions weren't so good. But you're right, I did do that, and I. I, and as a result of, of that study, I then had a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to help develop, uh, there were 23 hospices around the country that were funded by then HICFA, which is now CMS, uh, and, uh, and to develop a, uh, an RFP a contract to look at the quality of care and quality of care outcomes in hospice in the 23 demonstration hospices. And so I participated with the, uh, uh, the evaluation group and, the, uh, and a special study group put together by the Institute of Medicine to uh, look at the evaluation of the care 
issues for the 23 hospices, which subsequently the information was used to develop the reimbursement. Uh, at the time, HICFA was very concerned about, about reimbursing hospices for their care because when they reimbursed home care for home nursing, there was an explosion of home nurses and what they perceived to be some inappropriate uh, billing activities. And they were, uh, because they're a they were a fiscal agent, they were concerned that there may be runaway uh, expenses as a result of hospice programs springing up around the country. But it was an, uh, an area of research that uh, I was interested in and, and, uh, and it, uh, gave me an opportunity. I also was a was a hospice physician in Vermont for a couple of years. So, and and I worked with the visiting nurses association to uh, to sit in on their meetings to make sure that we were doing things the the best possible way. Got it. I'd love to sort of step back a little bit. Just when we were talking about the farmers earlier and their wives and how they kept you know, important records that would help in, in, in cancer prevention research. Um, I'm curious how, uh, how did you go about making the connection? You talked about maybe, I think it was power lines that people thought were maybe causing people to get leukemia. And then the wives of the farmers kept the records on the cows and the abortuses of cows. How did you go about receiving those records from farmers? And, and how did you go about making that connection? Well, at that point in time, and and uh, granges were very important. Uh, there were two things that are important in r rural communities like this: granges, which were organized uh, activities for farmers, but also the churches uh, in the uh, rural communities were very important in terms of making connections. So one of the things I did besides do tumor boards was to uh, go and talk to the various groups in the churches and the grange halls. And I just, it, it's funny, I hadn't thought about this in a while, but now I remember, you know, the, the, the grange, one of the grange halls in, in Richmond, Vermont was a meeting hall right next to the uh, grain storage uh, facility. Anyway, that in Vermont, the churches and the in uh, the granges at that point in time, and most of the granges don't exist anymore, were part of Americana, and that was the social access to lay communities, and and so oftentimes there'd be family practitioners who would be the point people to introduce you to the leaders in these areas in the small communities, and and. I'd go give talks about what was uh, important currently. There was a paper about acute leukemia in one of the journals. And so then it was really a suggestion of one of the, uh, uh, one of the docs that we ought to take a look because the other concern was, were there more miscarriages among the women who were pregnant in, in these areas? At the same time, people were concerned about microwaves and microwave ovens and whether or not the, they caused adverse effects or caused some bad diseases because of the the uh, strength of the microwaves and so there were studies then that subsequently were done in 
in radar men on ships where they got exposed to massive doses of microwaves and and they didn't find that there was an increased uh, uh, incidence of cancer. So the, these are kind of niches that provide unique opportunities to look at exposures and what the relationship between exposures are and cancers. And it's much the same as fiddlehead ferns. If I, if you ask people in the Midwest about have they ever eaten fiddlehead ferns, most of them wouldn't, wouldn't know what you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, no, this is all so fascinating. And um, I, I guess I sort of want to bring it back to, you know, the overall scope of the cancer center itself, the making of the cancer center. Could you, you know, what would you say were the key components to getting that core grant in 1978? And could you talk about the work of, you know, how, how Dick Albertini and, and Irv Krakoff played a role in this as well? Well, Dick Albertini was interest, had an assay for looking at the, in, in animals, looking at the carcinogenesis of chemicals. The existence of three, uh, uh, pharmaceutical chemists in the university uh, in who actually were looking at the developing a new uh, chemotherapeutic agents. The uh, uh, fact that Irv Krakoff was willing to move from Memorial to Vermont largely because uh, he uh, they had a summer place in Vermont and so he there, there was some family pressure to get out of Manhattan and, and move to Vermont. And his particular expertise, uh, uh, the, I was lucky enough to get the uh, rehabilitation grant that provided the, the structure for the clinics and also the, the, uh, that supported me to run around the countryside and to do some of the things that I was doing. I think every core grant, uh, uh, you know, Joe Simone used to say, if you've seen one cancer center, you've seen one cancer center. And that's basically true because uh, it's heavily dependent on what the existing expertise is and what the population is like, what the geography is like. The other thing we used to say is that if you look at Vermont, the patients flow off of the uh, green mountains uh, just like the rain so that uh, if you look at central vermont uh, the uh, central vermont hospital half the patients go to burlington half of them go to hanover to dartmouth and the people people all along the connecticut river basically uh, from brattleboro to st johnsbury they go to hanover because it's geographically closer and it's more convenient. So you have to look at all of those social factors, uh, the academic factors, what the university is willing to invest in. And, uh, and I still have some ties in Vermont because one of the people that I met when I went down to Glens Falls, New York, because we reached into New York to uh, take care of patients, one of the old industrials left uh, a large chunk of money for cancer research uh, at uh, at the University of Vermont, and and we're still supporting it. Over the years, I would guess we've probably contributed some 
we're around 20 to $30 million in supporting cancer research in Vermont. So it's, it's a combination of the environment, the expertise that's available, and the opportunities. And you never know when some of the opportunities are gonna occur. It, the opportunity for me was to show that treating lymphoma patients could make a difference, that you could actually treat people with Hodgkin's disease and they'd respond and they'd have good quality of life and they'd do, do okay. Or you could take care of patients with advanced cancer and you could make their life a little easier and their family's life a little easier if you could provide them with some with better supportive care, even if they weren't curable in terms of their disease. And so, so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. So Irv, I went, then they asked me to go to the National Cancer Institute. Uh, uh, and I was the associate director for cancer centers and community oncology, uh, a big program at the National Cancer Institute where I had some responsibility for developing programs around the country. Irv, the year after that, went to head the, become the chairman of medicine at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, and he did that for uh, uh, well over a decade. And and so we uh, we both used uh, Vermont in some ways as a springboard for subsequent careers. But we both look back and and think about those years as we had a lot of fun together. Absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like your, your work in Vermont was instrumental to your role at NCI. Well, it, it was, and and also my formative years in in, in Roswell. I were Jim Holland was my mentor, and uh, uh, and we maintained a, a good relationship over the years. So, uh, and and actually, I when I left the NCI, I went back to be the senior VP for clinical affairs at Roswell Park. So I came back where I came from in the beginning, <laughs> but I still have ties. Uh, at uh, uh, in Vermont, and I still have some ties at NIH. That's wonderful. Um, I think one other thing to touch on is just, I know you mentioned, and, and we all know, you know, funding is so different now than it was in 1974, but I know that uh, Vermont Cancer Center is um, working toward getting an NCI designation again. Do you have any words of wisdom in that regard? Well, I'm we're helping them as much as uh, as much as we can and and the new uh, uh, center director Randy Holcomb uh, it, it came from Hawaii and actually I I was asked to look at the cancer center directorship job in Hawaii in the late 70s before I went to the NCI and I know what it's like and there's similarities even though the geography isn't the same there's uh, similarities. And what he's doing is trying to put together programs that will be competitive in terms of a core grant. And that's not easy. I mean, uh, we did it way back when because the, uh, uh, the, there were pharmaceutical chemists in, existing in the chemistry department in the university. And so one's got to look at the expertise that's available there and uh, and try to put it together uh, into programs that will have sufficient ro1 or program project or spore support there's no spores in vermont uh, and so that they will be uh, competitive in terms of a core grant and and uh, so 
it was a good time for us because of the resources and the environment and the support we got from the university. And we're trying to help them put that back together again in Vermont. And I'm confident Randy knows how to do it. He did it in Hawaii. And, and I think with the right kind of support, he can do it in, in Vermont. Fantastic. Um, and I, I think just as a final question, is there anything I missed, anything else that's really important for our readers to know just about developing a cancer center in Vermont? No, I, you know, the approach, I think, is the same no matter where you are. You have to look at your environment. You have to look at the personnel that are available. You have to look at where the opportunities are because of the, particularly now with the funding structure, because uh, uh, you could be tilting at windmills if uh, if there, there's not external funding available to do this. Uh, I think that uh, you look at philanthropic funding that might be available. And, and in those days, the American Cancer Society was was a major, major factor in developing fellowship programs. And then the NCI picked up the fellowship programs to train medical oncologists. So it, 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 in some ways, it was uh, easier than it is now. Now, uh, because uh, uh, some of those funding sources have dried up for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, it's a little tougher. But the approach is still the same. You got to have a strategic plan for how you're going to do it. And that's what, what uh, we did uh, with the people that were available and the opportunities. And uh, that's what Randy is trying to do now in Vermont. I think the rural environment is different than uh, what you see in the major cancer centers, but it also uh, tends to limit the number of uh, hardcore basic scientists and, and the uh, kinds of people that are pursuing R01s and PO1s uh, in, in the universities. But the, the science in places like uh, Dartmouth, which is in Hanover, New Hampshire, which is in a very big town, and in uh, Burlington, Vermont, uh, uh, there's still good science in depth there. Uh, there just isn't the patient volume and the density of patients that you see in large cities. So conducting large clinical trials depends on having memberships and networks that are going to allow you access to generate protocols and to be chairman of protocols and, and where the patient population may come from across the country. So it's a little different environment, but uh, you know, it just takes uh, uh, probably uh, uh, just a little bit different approach. The Cancer History Project is a collaborative historical resource operated by the Cancer Letter. This is an ongoing project and would not be possible without the input and materials provided by our editorial board, our contributors, and the support of our sponsors, including Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, City of Hope, SWOG Cancer Research Network and the Hope Foundation for Cancer Research, Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, Sarah Cannon Research Institute, UPMC Hillman Cancer Center, University of Chicago Comprehensive Cancer Center, and many others. View a few lists of our sponsors at cancerhistoryproject.com sponsors. If your institution would like to participate in the Cancer History Project, email us at admin at cancerhistoryproject.com.